Welcome to 30 Years Later. Uh, You have a beautiful singing voice. You have a beautiful singing voice. Thank you so much. Never had one lesson. Um, I am your host, Ricky Camilleri. That is my fellow co-host, Chris Chafin. Hi, Chris. Howdy ho, listenerinos. Howdy ho. Uh, Today we are talking about a movie that came out 30 years ago. This September, September 12th was the day it was released, Postcards from the Edge, directed by Mike Nichols, written by Carrie Fisher, based on her book, semi-loosely autobiographical book uh, of the same name um, that I guess was kind of about her relationship with her mother, but it was mostly about her relationship with sobriety, and the movie ended up making it more about uh, about the mother character, obviously Carrie Fisher's mother Debbie Reynolds, um, before we get into it and this star-studded cast, unbelievably star-studded cast for seemingly no reason at all. (laughs) I mean, first of all, you got to say Oliver Platt. I mean, it wouldn't be a movie from 1990 without an Oliver Platt cameo for some reason. That's true. He really had he really had a moment there, didn't he? Just he wasn't the star, but he was always there. This is our second Oliver Platt movie. It is, yeah. So that means he had two big movies come out in within the span of a month, right? Like yeah. that's pretty cool. Uh, let's listen to the trailer for Postcards from the Edge. Just came by to say hi, make sure that everything's up to snuff, and we're going to need a drug screen. Excuse me. It's a formality of the business. So do you want blood or urine? I think urine would be fine. And uh, we'll see you outside, okay? Have fun. Thanks. Hello, dear. Oh. Hi, Mama. No, you see, she's exactly you know, like me when I was her age. What I'm doing, I, I feel like I belong film after film. I, I never necessary. stopped working. I know how to do that. It was very, very good therapy for me after my divorce and my miscarriages. Good times and bum times, I've seen them all in my dear. Ever since I was about seven, I wanted to be you. Bart does you in his drag show. I am still here. How would you like to have Joan Crawford for a mother? Oh, or Lana Turner? Um, first things first, before we start diving into the plot of the movie, um, which is basically, I mean, we'll just say the plot of the movie, Meryl Streep plays a version of Carrie Fisher and she's a struggling addict um, with a, a much with a famous mother uh, who's a bit of a, um, a song and dance woman from uh, the 50s and 60s. Um, and um, it's about her coming to sobriety and her relationship with um, with her mother getting better and the two of them dealing with the sobriety. It's the kind of movie that, if made now, would be made for under a million dollars and star like Mark Duplass and Melanie Linsky. But in this one, it's Meryl Streep and her mom, the Debbie Reynolds, is played by Shirley MacLaine, who is like, you know, fantastic in some parts of the movie. But it's, it is, I don't think even with um, the sort of gossip surrounding like, you know, Princess Leia and Debbie Reynolds as, as like who the movie's based off of, I don't think like Meryl Streep would do this movie now. Like, I don't think that there would be enough of a package here for Meryl Streep to do a movie like this. Well, so this is to kind of like jump into it, right? So we were saying 
you know, this was such a big deal movie from when it came out. And it's it got this reputation, I feel like, as being such an interesting, introspective movie. And I kept waiting for the, like, introspection to happen. And I by 2020 standards, I, I didn't feel like it happened. I felt like the movie was, like, very surface level. It was very, like... All, it was like witty repartee and and I didn't I mean and you described the you know the Carrie Fisher character uh, played by Meryl Streep as like a struggling addict but like she isn't even really that struggling like she's f- super successful but an addict and then she goes to recovery and then is clean for the rest of the movie I mean I guess there's a moment where she almost or like does take some pills but then vomits them up again like is but other than that, it's not like she's struggling with temptation at all. She's just then, then she's sober and she's trying to like deal with being sober. Um, which I found that again, I mean, not to, we should talk about what I brought up cause it's so fascinating, but I mean, I, I did think it was poignant to think about the, that the, the movie's treatment of sobriety in light of the fact that like Carrie Fisher did not stay sober for the rest of her life. Like not by a long shot. Um, so it was very much where it's like the movie portrays sobriety as like flicking a switch and then you're a sober person and it's like tough and it sucks, but you know, she's sober. It does seem like it barely sucks though. Yeah. It seems the same. It just seems the same. Like we, like the version that we get of it sucking for her is her being like, I'm tired and I'm cranky. And it's like, I'm yeah. sorry, are you experiencing a bad hangover or are you getting sober from like years of cocaine pill and alcohol abuse? <laughs> and in the movie, like we don't see her as a crazy addict either. It is implied that she does cocaine one time. And other than that, that's it. I mean, that's it. That's all it is. And she's like at work. She's like working hard, starring in a movie. And you're like, oh, okay, I, I guess her life is all fucked up. I don't know. I don't know. It seems okay to me. That's the thing about this movie. It does seem built off of a group of people who are scared of kind of of, of getting into the nitty gritty of addiction and what that looks like, right? I mean, maybe it, that's a 1990 it, thing. Maybe they couldn't show her doing drugs or they couldn't glorify the drug use or something. I, I don't know, but it, they certainly don't at all. Right, like it's implied that Meryl Streep's character is doing cocaine in her trailer. We never actually see her doing cocaine. I don't, I I don't No, we don't. We never see her doing cocaine. We don't see any cocaine paraphernalia. We don't even see her something easy to do. Like if you have like being up all night and then really tired the next day and out of it. No, none of that. None of that. She doesn't do cocaine on set, which makes her giggly. Okay. (laughs) Is that what cocaine does? All right. Then, like, when she wakes up in the... Or she doesn't wake up in the bed next to Dennis Quaid in the following scene because she's... um, We find out later that she took, like, basically a bottle of pills and tried to kill herself. We don't even see... And I get the narrative idea, like, who is this guy? What were they doing? It's kind of a mystery as to, like, exactly what they were doing that night. But, like, I kind of want to see her partying all the way up until that point. I think of a movie like Half Nelson, which is not... A movie that I love particularly, but when Ryan Gosling character, while he's not on the wagon at all for the whole movie, when he really falls off the wagon, we see him in a hotel room with a group of strangers smoking crack and snorting coke. Like it now makes sense who he is and what he's addicted to. Like what is Meryl Streep's character addicted to? What is her prop? What is what is her what? Like, what hole is she trying to fill? Is it an issue with her mom? Because that seems like a fairly, a fairly surface issue as well. Yeah. 
I mean, I guess they have her say that like, you know, there's a great professor you're saying the movie is totally star studded. So there's a really great performance from Gene Hackman in this movie as like a, a lovably gruff film director who's like, he says he, who he says he based that performance on the director, Richard Donner. Oh, really? It's yeah. so interesting. Richard Donner? Yeah, he Richard Donner is apparently the best dude in the whole fucking world. Gene Hackman seems so great in this movie. Um, but like, so he's always like calling on her bullshit, but also he loves her. Um, and so he says to her, like, you know, your life is pretty good. Like, I don't really know what you're always so sad about, basically. But he says it even more gruffly lovable than that. And she says, like, oh, you know, I know my life is good, but I just can't feel it. Which I thought that was basically the most insightful and real part of the movie. Because, like, I, I do sort of get that. Someone who's, like, her parents, her mom's a movie star and rich and famous. And she's been rich and famous since she was, like, 20 or whatever. And it just doesn't seem remarkable to her. It doesn't, nothing about being a rich and famous movie star seems like interesting or cool to her. It's just like, this is just what people are, you know? And so she, in order to feel good, has to get super fucked up all the time. I mean, that's, I feel like, what the movie is positing, as close as it gets to. And it's interesting because it's, it's, it's a script by Carrie Fisher from a book by Carrie Fisher about Carrie Fisher, but it doesn't seem to have a lot of insight into Carrie Fisher, you know? Well, it's a script by Carrie Fisher by a book by Carrie Fisher, but heavily, heavily developed by Mike Nichols. Oh, really? Yes. Very, very much. De- he pushed her to write the script and he worked with her on the script the, the, the whole time. I'll also say that having her just say, I don't feel anything I don't, when it comes to Carrie Fisher, you know, she started, like Robert Downey Jr., for instance, she started doing drugs at an extremely young age. And she talks about doing LSD at a young age. And it's referenced in this movie at one point where Meryl Streep says to Debbie Reynolds, like, what about LSD, mom? Can I go do some LSD? And like, that's the only thing. But like, Carrie Fisher has talked about how much she loved doing acid and how she started doing it at a young age. So like, if you start doing acid at a young age and you start doing things like, uh, like cocaine at a very young age, it will be hard to feel things later when you're sober. Like it will be hard to recognize feelings. Do you just mean like like chemically, or do you mean like like what like, yeah. what, like what are you talking about? Like, yes, chemi- chemically. What you think like the acid like broke her brain for the rest of her life? Is is that what you're saying? Oh, excuse me. Maybe not. Maybe maybe not chemically. But I do think that if you go a number of years, whether you start young or not, but if you go a number of years feeling things uh at such an exponential rate or sensational yeah right because of the drugs when you become sober you won't be able to really recognize those feelings as well things will feel dull and i will say meryl streep does perform dull kind of well in this movie well so this is the other thing to talk about about this movie right um is the performances, right? They were both nominated for Academy Awards. Neither one of them won. Them both being Shirley MacLaine and Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep seems to be playing Carrie, because the whole movie, as you said before, is about the, her relationship with her mother, basically. That's the centerpiece of the movie. And um, it, com- even though she's a successful movie star, like compared to her mother, she's like a slob and a mess and doesn't know how to manage her career and it doesn't know how to act around people. And, and, and as soon as she gets into the orbit of her mother, she becomes a teenager. 
And Meryl Streep seems, seems to be trying to play sulky teenager, but I don't think it's something, it's something withdrawn about her character. And I'm sure this is what she was going for, but also like, I just didn't think it was very good. I didn't think her performance was very good in this movie. Like, and I, I know it's a big deal and I am sure people would disagree with me, but like, I, I, some scenes of her and Shirley MacLaine, Shirley MacLaine is like acting circles around her. And then other scenes of Shirley MacLaine, like alone, like there's this great scene where she sings a song at the piano at this big party are fantastic. It's fantastic, fantastic. Uh, and I don't think Meryl Streep has anything close to that in this movie. She doesn't really just get to do anything like that. But also yeah, her performance I, I isn't agree. great. I don't think her performance is that great. It doesn't seem like a world that she knows. And I don't think that she can do that Streep can kind of do what she does best, which is bringing very over-the-top caricatures down to a grounded level. Right. You know, this right. is she's already... She's trying to do the opposite. She's trying, she's trying to act restrained, you know, and it's like... Right, which is with a very... Right. Re, with, a, with a character that is already quite restrained and, 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 and subdued. Yeah. Whereas Shirley MacLaine, on the other hand, is so much fun to watch because she gets to be the ham... Yeah, she's like such a ham. She's so big. She's basically performing every second of her life. You know, it's like being a successful entertainer is sort of incidental to the way that she has to be entertaining everyone around her all the time. Um, also, um, Streep, it was her ninth nomination already. That's fucking crazy. Um, 30 and, years ago, it was her ninth nomination. Jesus Christ. And she lost to Kathy Bates in Misery and Shirley MacLaine lost to Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost. That's and fucking I, wild. <laughs> and I so badly would have liked to be the person sitting in the chair next to Shirley MacLaine <laughs> when they announced Whoopi Goldberg just to hear like what slipped out of Shirley MacLaine's mouth in that moment. <laughs> I mean, we talked about Ghost in this movie, right? And like Whoopi's good in Ghost, but like, well, that's fucking insane. That's fucking insane. Like the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. <laughs> I mean, she's just giving so much Shirley MacLaine in this movie. She's giving everything she possibly has. She does like a thousand different emotions. I mean, she's doing what you said Street normally does is she's taking yeah. someone extremely over the top and she's making them into a real human being you understand. And I think that is one of the best parts of the movie is that like looking at Debbie Reynolds. And I mean, you could argue like, that's the thing Carrie Fisher has insight into is her mother. And she doesn't really have any insight into herself because she doesn't think about herself that much, you know, like, and it's like kind of a meta commentary of the movie. Cause that is like in line with her character in the movie. Right. But it, that means that postcards from the edge does Debbie Reynolds well, but the rest of it, it's kind of like, whatever, you know? <laughs> well, there's this passage in, um, David Thompson's The Biographical Dictionary Film about Mike Nichols that I think pertains very much to this movie, or this movie is a great example of what he's saying about Mike Nichols here, because Nichols won the directing Oscar for The Graduate, right? His second movie. And if you go and watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, and Catch-22, Catch-22 being the worst of the three, um, he has a very distinct theatrical style as a director which i love it's kind of very static camera positions less movements uh holding on wides very often and letting the actors play it out and then he has even said i'm not not a direct quote but nichols even said at one point in his career he realized that he wanted to make movies for wider audiences and therefore he was going to be cutting 
a lot more. And one of the impressions that I had watching this movie was I was like, this is not a very, this isn't a visually interesting movie. Yeah, no, I agree. It kind of looks like modern prestige television, if that. I don't even think it looks like prestige television. It just looks like television. No, because prestige television would always, like, every, like, 15 minutes, they throw in, like, a real stunner of a shot or, like, some kind of crazy sequence, you know, whereas this doesn't have it doesn't have anything approaching that. It's just, I, I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit, but it's, like, it's like a very, like, under-directed movie. It doesn't have a style. You know, it just kind of happens. Well, this is what uh, David Thompson, British film critic, writer of the Biographical Dictionary of Film and a bunch of other great books about movies. Mike Nichols is an unquestioned figure in our culture, a smart man, a funny man, a proven success in cabaret, on records as a stage director and as a deliverer of talking point movies. Movies that are smart, funny, adult, on the pulse and of their moment. Yet I find it hard to grasp a him in there, a movie director. After a dozen or so films, is there anything there more substantial than a high reputation and a producer's instinct for what smart people might want to see? Is there soul, intelligence, theme, or character holding these films together in a series? Or if Nichols is essentially a producer, a packager of things, then we have to know how well he fits the law of averages for producers. I just think that... Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Right? And isn't that... That's kind of what the movie feels like. It doesn't feel like there is a, a strong soul behind it. It feels like a package. Yeah, and I mean, it's exactly what you're what he's saying. I mean, and this is why I remember this movie of being an eight-year-old child is like, it was completely on the pulse. It was what everybody wanted to talk about. It was a huge hit in like the conversation, which back then was even more limited, right? It was like, like a good article on Newsweek was like most of the deal. But like, yeah, it was totally on the zeitgeist. But to watch it as a film, you're like, I don't know, like, okay, I mean, I don't know, there's nothing particularly, and this is the other thing is like, I don't think it particularly has a plot, and I don't think it really reaches a resolution, even if you look at the plot as being emotional, and it's about an emotional resolution between her and her mother, and there's a beautiful scene towards the end where her mom's in the hospital for something not at all serious, and Carrie Fisher, like, figuratively and literally builds up her mother by like putting on her makeup and putting her wig on and all this stuff. And it's like, that's the catharsis of the movie. I mean, it's like a good scene, but I don't think it ranks as like the resolution to all of the issues of the film. It just seems like just another instance in their lives. You know, I didn't particularly, I felt a little bit cheated because I was looking at the running time and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is the climax of this movie. Like, fuck off. Two things. The first thing is I hated the moment in that scene where her stepfather, Sid, finally spoke. And it was like a running joke through the movie that the stepdad didn't speak. Like such a boring, easy joke. And yeah. she's like, Sid speaks. And I feel like even Meryl Streep didn't really know how to perform that bit. And it just yeah. doesn't really land. The second thing is that I completely agree with David Thompson. But this is 100% written at a time where you can take a movie like Postcards from the Edge for granted, right? Like, <laughs> like, like Postcard- meaning what? Like meaning what? That a, a Hollywood studio greenlit that movie and gave it like oh ten million dollars and released it in August. <laughs> so yeah. why in wide release? You know, like you could be a smart adult and like go to a mall and see postcards from the edge. Whereas like I said, that would be a movie that like, I would probably be, it wouldn't star Meryl Streep or Shirley MacLaine. It would star 
maybe Blythe Danner and Melanie Linsky, and it would be something that I passed up on on Netflix. Or maybe I tuned in on Netflix and I was like, oh, that's nice, or saw it at South By. I mean, it would if if it came out today, it wouldn't be a film. It would be a prestige TV series. It would be like um, Big Little Lies. You know, it would be like it would be full of movie stars. It would be on a streamer, but it would also kind of be like padded out and like needlessly convoluted. And then there's like three more seasons of it that just basically turn into a crazy soap opera. But you know, there's a core of something interesting there, kind of. But like, it it's, gets away from it very quickly. Or it would it would be about a young male comedian and his dad, and it would be by Judd Apatow, and it would be also be padded out and filled with other movie oh stars. God, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it would be Pete Davidson and Judd Apatow playing his dad, and then uh, <laughs> there would be like a subplot about like a, a middle school dance or something, you know? <laughs> oh God! Or like you know a comedy show that he's doing that his dad has like said, he's not going to go to because they got into a fight, but then at the last minute has decided to go, but there's traffic and he can't get there in time. And he gets out of the car and his dad, even though he's got like a bad leg runs over all of the cars and the traffic to get to the, like the New York comedy club in Greenwich village that his son is performing at for the first time mm-hmm. opening, opening for Dave Chappelle or like Greg Giraldo or some shit. <laughs> opening for bill burr yeah exactly. yeah and the, and like you know the kid gets up on the stage and he's nervous at first and he's a, and he he his first joke kind of bombs and he's getting sweaty and the audience is like looking at him like this sucks what's happening here and then all of a sudden the kid looks up and he sees his fucking goomba dad in the background mm. and he's i can't say goomba no, no, I just meant that's such a beautiful moment. That was the sound of me appreciating oh, okay, it was such okay. an emotional catharsis. And then and then he he and then he gets on a roll and just does ten straight minutes about how small his dad's dick weighs. <laughs> uh yeah. But you see, dude, like as much as this is like cliched Judd Apatow shit and it, it that's so much more emotional catharsis than is in this film. Like they do not come to a resolution. I don't feel like there's a, an emotional climax to this movie. I feel like it just kind of like, it goes at a very surface level and then it stops, you know, and that's it. You know, you get to see a couple little sequences of them interacting and they never even have like a big fight. I mean, they kind of have a fight, but also like, it's not really that bad. It just seems like a normal fight. I mean, there are, uh, well, one, you know, this is a James L. Brooks movie, but a bad one. James L. Brooks made the best versions of these movies. Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News. Those are the absolute quintessential... Oh Broadcast best, News, such such a good movie. Best versions of movies like this. Adult, talky, funny, human, flawed people, you know, uh, bouncing around each other in a little way. Terms of Endearment, it's just unparalleled masterpiece about mothers and daughters. Shirley MacLaine is in that... Um, this just doesn't have that. I don't think the script is really there and I don't think Nichols is really directing it. There's only three moments for me that really pop. And that's when Gene Hackman's on screen and he's always great. And he sees that she's in the trailer doing cocaine. And when she gets out of the trailer, he's like, you ruined my fucking movie. I'll fucking kill you. Do you hear me? I'll fucking kill you. You ruined my fucking movie. I'll fucking kill you. I'm going to fucking kill you. He's so (laughs) great. And then when he comes back for the, the last act, and she's doing her her voice dubs. She's having trouble, and they have that really beautiful heart to heart. Hackman is so fucking good in that moment. And He's then so good. Shirley MacLaine's 
uh, song and dance number at the piano, which I thought was fine. It's also maybe not for me. <laughs> I mean, I like it. You just have to say it's like an amazing performance. You know, she's like, and, and to look at it, not as like, I'm watching a film where Shirley McLean is singing a song, but to look at it as like, this woman is performing at this party which she really shouldn't even be throwing and she certainly shouldn't be performing at and she's doing it. And you know, her daughter, it's like, it's basically a party to celebrate her daughter's sobriety where of course everyone is getting drunk. Right. You know, it's like extremely inappropriate. Her daughter feels like shit. She doesn't want to see anyone. And she forces her to go to this party and forces her to then just sing a song only then herself to sing a song immediately afterwards and do it much better. And it's like, you know, that is what makes it a special, interesting performance, you know, and it's great. And then I would say the last moment of the movie, which is over the credits, Meryl Streep performs. Um, In fact, the song is written by Shel Silverstein. Oh, that's right. Shel Silverstein. That's right. Yeah. Who I did not. I mean, I guess this is a well-known fact, but he had a, a very healthy second career as a, a songwriter, especially a country songwriter. He wrote Boy, Boy Named Sue and he wrote 25 Minutes Ago, which is a great Johnny Cash song that's on uh, Folsom Prison Blues. Yeah, and, you know, lots of other country hits of the 1970s that were very popular at the time, but you wouldn't know to hear them now, right? But yeah, this song at the end, it's kind of a country pop song, and it's by Shel Silverstein. But what's so strange about this moment at the end of the movie where Meryl Streep performs, what is wonderful about it almost has nothing to do with the story, even though the story has been saying for the whole, her mother has been saying for the whole movie, you should sing you should sing. And there's a scene earlier where she sings uncomfortably when this climactic moment happens where she's singing narratively, somehow it's still like, okay, I guess she's like, who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? It doesn't feel like a triumph, but Meryl Streep owns it. And she's fantastic singing that song. And the song is fucking great. And it feels, it suddenly feels less like a, um, I felt like I wasn't in a Mike Nichols movie anymore. And I was in a Jonathan Demi movie where all of a sudden it was just like, raucous and fun and colorful and filled with and, you're, life and people were happy and you're seeing like it's first it uh, now correct me if i'm wrong i'm not 100 percent sure how this goes it seems like the way it goes is you're seeing her do her first ever performance at like an open mic night and then seamlessly it kind of cuts to being the filming of her music video and this is the whole thing as shirley mclean keeps saying like oh you'll do a great music video and so the end is basically like just all these shots and they're these beautiful crane shots like soaring up in the studio you're seeing like all the crew like and all like the lighting guys they're all dancing and laughing and you know then that's all over the credits and it is it's a lot of fun it's, it's nice yeah yeah that to me didn't feel that had the kind of life that more of the movie should have had, even though the movie was about, like, it just doesn't feel like the movie never felt like it wanted to go in one direction of being really dark and actually about sobriety and addiction. And in the other direction of wanting to be like light and fun and a celebration of life. Like it just felt stuck yeah. somewhere in a narcotized, narcotized, narcotized middle. Narcotized, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, it just didn't feel alive. Right. It just didn't feel like, a bunch of living people moving around the real world, you know? And it's like, look, it's a movie about movie stars. Like you would think there would be like space to do stuff that was fun and interesting. And you know, there's that those things do not happen. I really don't think those things happen. What do we think of Dennis Quaid as the producer fuck boy that oh seduces God. her? 
Yeah, so Dennis Quaid has this right. I don't know if you said it was him before, but in the very beginning, she wakes up having almost died of either an accidental or on purpose overdose. And it's, she's with Dennis Quaid and Dennis Quaid takes her to the hospital and drops her off and then like leaves again, which she does through just like sheer force of Dennis Quaid charm. He keeps bringing her, the, the, the nurse is like, Oh, and what's your name? And he's like, Oh, huh, well, uh, I actually, uh, I have to go. And he's doing his huge Dennis Quaid smile. I mean, he's great. He's great. He's an amazing fucking shape. His abs are like a fucking dream. He looks, his hair is amazing. His smile is to die for. And he's just <laughs> acting like a charming self-centered piece of shit, but who also it's like, it's like you're complicit in this by because because you want to fuck me because I'm good looking and a, and in shape. It's like you have to put up with me being a dick. Like this is it all comes together. It's a package, you know. Like it's peak peak Quaid, I would say. Yeah, it's peak Quaid. It's peak Quaid for sure. Like outside of Breaking Away, his first movie, this is just like one of the only other movies where it's like, oh, this guy makes sense in this role, rather than this is just sort of like a random actor that they that they threw in here. Uh, you don't think he makes sense in inner space, Ricky? Is that what you're saying? Not particularly. <laughs> I've never I've never loved inner space, but I know I'm in the minority there. I mean, it was one of the movies I liked when I was like seven, so I don't I can't really speak to its value as a film, but you know. Richard Dreyfus is also in this movie. Has just like a very minor part as a doctor who then is bigger at the end, but only he only has like two scenes, um, but he's great. He's also just being a very real person. He seems like a, he's, he maybe alone in the movie seemed to me like an identifiable real person. He's got this kind of way of acting like a doctor where he's like concerned, but amused. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's very true. I think, you know, <laughs> Doesn't it feel like most of these cameo parts have two scenes? Like yes. Gene Hackman has two scenes. Richard Dreyfus yeah. has two scenes. Quaid has three, maybe four. Maybe three or four. Yeah, exactly. But he's yeah. supposedly like a huge part of the plot. And he has like three or four scenes. Apparently, apparently Jerry Orbach got cut out of the movie in a part uh, of where he played Meryl Streep's father. And John Cusack got cut out of the movie in oh a part God. where he played like a former Manson family member who was in rehab with her. Oh my God. I would love to see both. I would especially love to see Jerry Orbach. I want to see Jerry Orbach and Shirley MacLaine have to interact, you know, like. Incredible. So great. That would have been amazing. Um, I feel like we should talk about another person who gets a small role in this movie and what the movie has to say about, or what 1990 felt like it had to say about sex um, mm-hmm. at this time in promiscuity, Annette Benning plays a, an actress on uh, the movie that Meryl Streep's character is working on, which is like a B movie based off of um, based off of Carrie Fisher's role in Hollywood Vice Squad. I don't remember the name of the movie in uh, postcards, but in real life it was Hollywood Vice Squad. And Annette Benning plays a prostitute, a sex worker in the in that movie, and they Streep finds out from her co-star that Annette Benning has slept with Dennis Quaid herself as well. Right. I slept with Dennis Quaid as well. And Meryl Streep goes to talk to her about it and she says, yeah, I did. He sleeps with everybody. And he gives a bunch of like silly lines to women to sleep with them. And Meryl Streep freaks out. Yeah, she's so upset, you know. And it's interesting because like, okay, so eventually through the conversation we find out that like he's seeing 
uh, Annette Benning simultaneously to seeing Meryl Streep, which when they have a big fight about it later, Dennis Quaid says like, well, we never said we were exclusive, which is supposed to be like a joke, but like, that seems like a pretty real thing to me. Like if you hadn't said you were exclusive, then you're not exclusive, you know, like who cares? Um, but, but even before she finds that out, it's basically like, oh, well, this guy's a real piece of shit because he has in the past had sex with someone else. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? And it's like, it's like this woman is a floozy and like it's disgusting he would have sex with her because she's playing a prostitute in a movie? I, I'm, then, I'm sorry, and what? <laughs> isn't there, and there's this whole period of time in the movie where everybody feels more dedicated to Meryl Streep sleeping with a guy who's had sex with other people than her fucking sobriety. Yeah, her suicide attempt. And nobody's really talking about that, but they're like, oh my God, this guy has had sex with other people? What? Ugh. It is very, I mean, you're right. It's a very weird attitude towards sex. And I mean, this is even like uh, Shirley MacLaine as her mom. There's a scene where she's like, Meryl Streep is sober. She's just gone out for a date with Dennis Quaid and she comes back early in the morning. And she says to her mom, like, oh, I didn't want to stay out. I didn't want to stay all night because I didn't want to worry you. And her mom is like, Uh, look, I didn't raise you to sleep around. She's saying to her drug-addicted daughter who almost committed suicide, and then who is an adult movie star, you know? It's like, but it's very, oh, I didn't raise you to sleep around. Wait, we should should specify a movie star that is an adult, not an adult movie star. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's right, you know. She's, well, I don't actually, I was going to say the name of a porn star, but I don't know any because I don't go in for that kind of thing. But, um, right, no, she's a movie star who is an adult. It was just very strange. It's this very strange 1990 attitude about sex. Like, what is sex to these people? Like, like it, it's disqualifying for Dennis Quaid to have ever fucked someone before. I really didn't get, I really didn't get what they were trying to say. I want to just go back to David Thompson for one second to say what he said specifically about postcards from the edge. Great. Which is, uh, just to follow it up, he said, uh, with Postcards from the Edge, I can only see the taming of a tough rye book and the remorseless, smart casting that went for McLean and Streep instead of Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher. Maybe it was smarter to have smart people just know who the characters were, and maybe someone thought McLean and Streep were better box office, which only shows the tangle being smart can get into. That's interesting. I mean, so this is another thing I thought about this movie is um, watching it, watching uh, Shirley MacLaine as Debbie Reynolds. I kept thinking about Debbie Reynolds in Mother, the Albert Brooks movie that came out six years later in 1996, where she's playing exactly this. She's playing an overbearing mother who loves her kid, who has a creative kid, who is successful, but not as successful as he maybe could be. And... um, you know, they have this loving but fraught relationship. And there are some scenes where the dialogue is almost is almost very, the, kind, the way that she's being a mother is very similar. And it's like, well, this just must be what Debbie Reynolds is like, and that's why she got the part in Mother, and that's why she's good in Mother. But, like, I kept comparing them, and it's, uh, you know, Shirley McLean has great scenes in this movie, and I think she's great, but she has other scenes where I just feel like she doesn't quite capture it. Like, there's a way that Debbie Reynolds can do this same kind of thing where it's like, charming and kind of in you kind of endearing like you understand why people put up with it it's because it it sounds sweet coming out of her mouth but it's actually mean like yeah, that's Shirley her McLean, whole deal Shirley McLean does never never sounds sweet no 
everything Debbie Reynolds says sounds sweet and loving, but it's like, if you think about it for a split second, you're like, actually, that was really fucked up. But like everything Shirley MacLaine says sounds mean, like right from the beginning, you know, there's no, there's no second layer to it. Well, you know, Debbie Reynolds asked Mike Nichols if she could play the part and Mike Nichols said, you're not right for it. I mean, that's Hollywood for you, brother. Like, this script is literally about you. By the way, you can't be in it. <laughs> Dick move. That's Dick move. That's fucked up. That's fucked um, up. Chris, I have to ask, what is your favorite part of this movie? Uh, well, my favorite part of this movie, I mean, we talked about it a little bit. It's kind of a surface thing to say, but it's kind of a surface movie. I'm, I have to say the, the piano scene, her singing, I'm still here. Like, that's the Stephen Sondheim song. Uh, I think it's just so great. It's such a great performance. It, it tells you all the dynamics between the Streep character and the McLean character. Like, and you understand all of their conflicts and all of their love and all of the like weird shades to how they interact. And the fact that they're professional entertainers. It's all contained in that scene. Plus, Shirley McLean is like fucking killing it singing the song. Like, I, I think that's that's the whole movie right there, basically. Uh, my favorite part, I'm going to go with um, the credits when Meryl Streep <laughs> sings over the credits. It just feels my like a favorite class, lunch. It just feels like a completely different movie. And yeah. a movie that I would have rather watched the entirety of. I mean, it reminded me of uh, a movie that I liked that lots of other people didn't, which was Demi's last movie, Ricky and the Flash, with Meryl Streep as oh, like I didn't a, see a, that. a rock singer. I loved it. It's not great, but uh, it's, it's, it's not his best, but I liked it a lot. Um, what is uh, what is the most nineties nineties uh, part of this movie for you? Wait, so before we get to that, can I just say something? It reminded me of too. Uh, talking about the the end scene, it's like the and the way the resolution pays off because it's Debbie Reynolds keeps saying like, "Oh, you should." be a singer you should make a music video it reminded me of hollywood shuffle where the whole joke is like there's always work at the post office and then in the end he's like in a commercial for the post office but like somehow i felt like that was a better payoff like i felt more emotionally invested in that and more like delighted by seeing it and and it was surprising in a certain way where this doesn't really deliver that I, i i agree with you that the actual filming of the actual sequence is is good and joyful but like as far as like narratively i didn't feel like it paid off as well well that yeah that's what i said uh when i when i when i brought it up before which is that like it somehow even though it's been referenced that like meryl streep needs to sing people would like to see her sing she'd be a good singer if she tried even when we get to this moment what's joyful about that is everything but the story Exactly. It's just the performance in that second, right? Well, there's just um, something missing from the whole movie where when the final game happens and the Ducks are winning, it's not working for some reason. It's just, and it just, you just don't feel like... You don't feel you don't anything. Feel like, you don't feel like that has been the conflict of the movie that is now being paid off in some way. It just feels like another thing that happened. And, and if anything, I was kind of like, oh, it sucks you gave into her mom like that like i don't know i thought she was doing a good job establishing herself on her own and now she's doing just what her mom wanted her to do like that's kind of yeah because it's never established that that's what she would have wanted not at all and in fact it's established that she doesn't want to do it and hates doing it but then it's like she's doing it because her mom was right the whole time is that supposed to be sweet or something like just seems sad 
Um, um, but the most 90s part of the movie, Ricky? Um, yeah, what is I, it? What's the most 90s part of the movie, Chris? Well, I do think that um, looking forward to the 1990s, uh, this movie's weird obsession with addiction and making everything into an addiction, there's like a whole... A whole during the scene I was talking about where uh, Meryl Streep comes home late at night and she's having this fight with Shirley MacLaine who's been up all night. It's like Shirley MacLaine is drunk and still drinking at six in the morning. And it's like, I bet you think I'm an alcoholic. Just say that I'm an alcoholic. And it's like very, this very fraught scene, but it's, it's so nineties. This just like medicalization of addiction. This like, everything's an addiction. We're all dealing with the disease of addiction. Like I always found all that stuff, you know, I mean, I, I know that it helps people and it's good and I appreciate that, but it, watching it in film, I always feel it's a little ponderous, you know, and it's, it's also very weird. You know, it doesn't accomplish anything or resolve anything to say that something's an addiction. I, I personally don't feel, uh, but that's something that the nineties film and TV was very, very interested in was whether or not someone was addicted to something. That was a very important question in lots of media, you know? Can you guess what my most 90s thing is? Uh, Just guess. I'll give you three guesses. The most 90s thing in the movie. Dennis Quaid. No. No. Okay. (laughs) It was such a contemptful pause. It was just like... Um, second most 90s thing. It's really 90s, um, but Dennis, Dennis Quaid is 80s. I don't Dennis know. I don't 90s. know. I don't know. I, honestly, Ricky, I have no fucking idea what you thought was 90s about this movie. Annette Benning. <laughs> wow. Why? Because it's 1990. She's not even a very well-known actor yet. She got cast in the movie because she helped Mike. She's a New York theater actress who was helping Mike Nichols with table reads. And then the 90s, become her her decade it's true you know what's funny is i almost said when you asked me what the most 90s thing was like well there's not any tits in the movie so it can't be that but this is as close as it gets she is the most attractive person in the movie so yeah true. okay yeah cool um what is some, what is something that this movie it's been 30 years since this movie came out what is something that it grew out of is it the addiction thing no i I almost said that. I think that there's a very, we haven't talked about this, but there's a very particular way this movie treats gay people, homosexual men in particular. Um, oh, yeah. They love Shirley McLean's character. They love her. You know, the gays love me. It's very like a movie that tr- it acknowledges gay people and treats them as normal people, but also treats them as completely homogenous subculture that's obsessed with show tunes. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's this very, especially early nineties way of being like, Oh, we're being revolutionary because we're admitting that gays exist, you know, but also like, here's the three things all gay people like, you know, like, and I think it's fair to say that all of the gay people in this movie are, extremely effeminate white men yes extremely effeminate like one of them unprompted bursts into a show tune like it's very like you know second season of the simpsons treatment of gay people you know (laughs) that said it might be fair to assume though considering that the gay people that we are going to meet in this world are going to be associated with being fans of this woman who did musicals in the 50s so therefore they may actually be in it may be actually a a true reflection of debbie reynolds's reality yeah i've like carrie fisher's lived experience of having debbie reynolds be your mom so like yes gay people are always coming up to her throughout the 60s 70s and 80s 
be telling her they love her in some obscure musical from 1952, you know, like, yeah. yes, I believe, I believe that's true. Yeah. But it does. It's also pretty dated. It also seems pretty dated. Yeah, I agree. It's, extra, it's, it's very dated. What, what do you think the most nineties thing is Ricky or no <laughs> shit? The most, uh, Oh yeah, no, that was the, Oh no. The thing grew we've out grown out of the thing we grew out of. Yeah. Uh, I think I already said it, but I think it's attitude towards promiscuous sex and it's like v- extreme fear of promiscuous sex, which only grows more fearful as the nineties progress, you know, like you're coming out of the AIDS epidemic and whether it was in response to that or not, by the time you reach 1995, traditional family values as like a propaganda tool has, has, has come to pretty significant dominance in the, in the, in the culture. And, um, you know, abstinence-only education, as well as uh, single partners and monogamy, have yeah. become uh, fairly uh, consistent uh, ac- across the board. Yeah, no, it's true, right? It's just, it's just so weird because it's, I don't like. Is this? Are these real thoughts that Carrie Fisher really has, like about the sex and relationships, or is is she trying to like? trying to give people what she thinks they will accept or like what is going on i just found it very bewildering you know i didn't get where it was coming from but maybe this was the attitude at the time you know i mean maybe it's not necessarily about the something got lost in the writing and it wasn't supposed to be about the attitudes towards sex it was supposed to be about this guy seducing her and the way that he seduced her and the fact that he's like doing it with other women but the movie focuses too intensely on on sex and promiscuous sex and so therefore it just feels prudish and like a condemnation on the fact that this guy sleeps around it doesn't feel like a condemnation on how he seduces her how he's lying and what kind of what kind of guy he is or like if he is lying to her because he really i mean he does tell lies about a couple things but like it's it's just it i mean i know i already said this but it's like the fact that he has slept with someone else makes him into a bad person and then the rest of it is just confirming that initial feeling he also says the most fucked up thing to her that anybody says in the movie which is absolutely terrible and seemingly comes out of nowhere as this guy outside the fact that he's a bit of a fuck boy does not seem like a sociopath and as she's as she's storming away from him after you know telling him that he's a scumbag, he says, "You were you were more fun when you were when you weren't sober," you know, yeah. which is an incredibly dangerous thing to say to a recovering addict. And there is absolutely no implication that prior to this moment he would be that horrible. I mean, maybe the fact that he dropped her off at the hospital and didn't stay, but like also. It- like, why the fuck would he care? Do you know what I mean? Like, he seems like, yeah, he's he's, he's sleeping with a million actresses. And one of the actresses is like, oh, I can't believe you're sleeping with a million actresses. Like, this must happen to him, like, once a week, you know? But he's so <laughs> angry. He's, like, following her out into the driveway and screaming, like, insightful, hurtful things at her. Like, I think he would just be like, well, okay, all right. Well, you know, no harm, no foul. See you around, you know? Why like, he, yeah, why would he care? I don't. I don't get it. It didn't. It didn't make sense to me. This movie, I will say, as we wrap things up, is a very disappointing addition to uh, the movies that we've watched. Because having watched so many bad, starting this over the course of the summer, and having had to watch so many bad summer sequels and uh, blockbuster movies, it, I was excited to watch an adult drama. 
Yeah, me too. I was really excited to watch like, you know, it's, there's this kind of mystery to movies that were for grownups from when you were a kid, you know, and it, it helps you feel like you're accessing some part of your life you don't really know about. So I was very excited to watch this movie and yeah, I was very disappointed. I was, I was like, this is it. This is what you guys were so excited about. Like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> Jesus, yeah, like, how starved are you guys for anything? It's like content was always bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. It's like, there is no ideal past. It's like, it was always fucking sucked, you know? Well, we always remember the past for its greatest hits and forgetting exactly. that like those greatest hits were like five movies over the course of 10 years. Well, this is what I love about doing this show, Ricky, is like because because you forget about the things that were actually popular at the time and you only remember the things that went on that, that people liked later, you f- it can give you this idea that like the past was better, but it's like, no, it was also like really awful. You know, it was, it was also just as shitty as now, you know, there, there's an equal number of good things being produced now, if not more, you know, probably a lot more. Uh, well, speaking of movies that lived on past their time in our next episode, we're going to be talking about Goodfellas with uh, Glenn Kenny, who's coming to talk about his book, Made Men, which is being released right around the time. Uh, a great book that I just finished about the making of Goodfellas and about all of its cultural associations and connotations and what Scorsese was maybe really trying to get at with it and how it was a... Uh, misinterpreted by both critics and largely by <laughs> uh, Goomba audience members. <laughs> Postcards from the Edge, uh, a disappointing addition to uh, the 30 years later track track of movies. Um, disappointing. Disappointing, yeah. Yeah. Adults of uh, 1990. Like, get your heads together, man. <laughs> ¶¶ 